History Teachers Talking Podcast short lectures have now grown up and moved to their own channel. Don't forget to subscribe to our new podcast, History Shorts, wherever you're listening to this episode. Meanwhile, thanks for listening to History Teachers Talking, and here is your newest episode. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. What do we got today, Tommy? Um, today we're going to talk about something that every American definitely has heard of, is definitely aware of. We probably mentioned it sporadically over the course of doing the show the last couple of years. So we're going to take an in-depth look now, kind of a deep dive into the, uh, the Boston Massacre. Yes. As just mentioned before we click record, also known in Great Britain as the Incident on King Street. So they don't teach it as the Boston Massacre. They teach it as Incident on King Street, which yeah. I had no idea until doing uh, research for this. Do you think Britain. I would have known this after that's, all this time? That's Britain. This is America. We call it the Boston Massacre. That is okay. true. I learned a lot of things doing this. You know, it's, it's interesting because I teach this, and it, it kind of gets jumbled in. You teach it, too. We all, every teacher that teaches U.S. history teaches this. And it all gets jumbled in with your, you know, Stamp Act and the Townsend Act. Yeah, that pre-American. Yeah, that pre-revolution stuff. Yeah, but, but like when you look at it by itself, a lot of interesting – I'll just say, and we'll get to them today. A lot of interesting things came up while I was doing this research that I was perhaps either unaware of or just simply not paying attention to uh, while I was just you know lumping it in with everything else. So we are, of course, talking about the confrontation in Boston between the British redcoats and American colonists on March 5th, 1770. And the final result, as most of you might know, if maybe if you remember or don't remember from school, is the fact that uh, nine British soldiers shot into the crowd. And it wasn't just like, you know, 20, 30 people. There was like 400 people harassing them. And this was publicized as a massacre and really became the rallying cry eventually over the years. Over the years. Um, That's what people, I don't interrupt you, that people, a lot of people don't understand it. It's not like this happened and then there was like independence. It's happened in 1770. Yeah. So like there was Absolutely. still another six years, five, six years before really that independence, Declaration of Independence and the war, Lecture and Concord don't happen until what, 75, 1775. This is that prequel stuff. This is the stuff that leads up to it. Even the massacre, I think we should do a little bit of like what pre what predated it too to kind of set the stage yeah. for what took place too. But yeah, like, like you're saying, there's a lot more to it than just the British soldiers shot some people. Uh, let's get us started with some background, right? We're talking about 18th century Boston, right? Boston is the capital of Massachusetts uh, Bay Colony. It's one of the three major cities in the colonies at the time, Boston, Philadelphia, and New York being the main three. And definitely one of the most, if not the most, uh, influential political, economic, and cultural center of the 13 colonies. Most of these things that we talk about when we talk about American Revolutionary War really originate and start right there in Boston. That's the center of resistance. Oh, that's just, you had the Sons of Liberty, yeah. right? They, they were from Boston, that area. So they were the ones. It's also because Boston was a port city, right? For the yeah. most part, as Massachusetts was, like all the, like the, the, the ports and everything. Trade was very important. And a lot of those taxes that we'll get to, the, like all the Townsend Acts, which basically go in place at this time, were all there to 
really affect the people in Boston. It affected the wealth. It affected their livelihoods in a lot of ways. They were kind of left alone for a long time, right? The Boston colonies, all the colonies were. They were left alone for quite a bit of time by by the British. They were calling it neglect, whatever you want to whatever you want to really like sum it up as. But that all changed after the um, French Indian War. So after the French Indian War, with basically the British Parliament enacts those townhouse acts that we talked about earlier, because they basically needed to try to get more money. Now they saw the colonies as a way to kind of pay back that war. That lasted from 1754 to 1763. And these acts were put in place for that. And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the people are getting mad because he has tax on lead, glass, paper, paint, obviously tea. The Sons of Liberty and some of these other radical groups try to organize like boycotts. A lot of other people are just like, fine, we'll pay the tax. It's not that much. We'll pay it because that's just what we're doing. We're still subjects of England. That They're still very loyal to the king at this point. The very reason why you even get to Townsend Acts, the very reason why Britain feels the need to impose these duties on different imported goods, right, is to collect revenue that was intended to pay for the salary of royal officials in the colonies. And the royal officials in colonies, you had a royal governor of every colony, number one, right? So the prior to this, this is the big key here, during this salutary neglect that you mentioned, um, where England kind of stepped back and allowed everyone it's in the like, colonies. They did their own thing. They were across the Yeah, land. to do their own thing. Absolutely. Thing, whatever. One of the things that wind up happening is the local assemblies in the colonies actually were responsible for paying the salary of each royal governor, which is, if you think about it, kind of stupid because the royal governor is supposed to represent England and the crown, right, in here in the colonies, and each colony has the royal governor, except that governor gets paid every single month. Their salary gets paid by the local assembly made up of local farmers or lawyers or whatever, which means technically speaking, you have the locals that are running the show and not the governors. And what winds up happening after the Sugar Act, and which is repealed because, you know, there's all kinds of uprising. Yeah. Stamp Act, 1765, a year after the Sugar Act, is repealed because of widespread protests and boycotts. Um, then the Quartering Act comes in in 65. Quartering Act is, is, a, is required because you have to have British soldiers brought over to the colonies to kind of quell some of this rebellion. And these protests and boycotts, so like you yeah, gotta have them somewhere. And all those people that you were talking about, those like local officials, asked for the British to send over regiments, and that's yep. basically what happened. Because a lot of the businesses that weren't going along with the boycotts were being vandalized, people were being harassed. So the, they asked the British officials for help, and the British sent over to Boston the 14th and 29th regiments of the British Army to Boston. They arrived in October of 1768, and this is kind of already. There's already heightened tension, and now you're sending these these red coats in there. It's just making it more. Everyone's getting like on their on their feet, like they're getting really like anxious and stuff. Yeah, they're ready to go. And the Townsend Acts, the very final act, which was kind of the lead up. That that's the last lead up, right, to the Boston Massacre. That Townsend Act of '67 that imposed all those duties it was designed to pay the salary of those royal, as I mentioned, those royal officials, those royal governors. So finally, England realized, like, we need to be able to pay the governors ourselves. It has to come from British money, so we have control over them again. So we're just going to tax all of these local colonists, you know, paper, glass, tea, whatever, and then we'll take that money and we'll pay the salary of these governors. But the Townsend Acts kind of blew up in their face. Um, There's a lot of resentment towards it 
And you also have this new job of these tax collectors because of these taxes through the Townsend Acts. And that leads us, like I mentioned, directly into what winds up happening in Boston. Yeah, a little bit before this, like you have what's happened to the early 1770. You have basically this, the boycott like you're talking about. And these colonial radicals, many of them were the Sons of Liberty. They began going against these local businesses. But a lot of them, like we talked about, they basically ignored it. And then there was one individual known as Ebenezer Richardson, who was known as kind of this radical. He was he was known as basically an informer. He tried to take down a lot of the signs that they put up above his shop and stuff like that. And then there was this young boy. Um, his name was Theophilus Latil, basically. Yep. And when I say little boy, he was literally, like, I think he was like a um, young teenager. And was he 13? He was 13, yeah. yeah. It was, but it was a whole group. There were 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds. They were, you know, much more harder than the boys today, obviously. Yeah. Like, these kids <laughs> yeah. were like, on the streets of Boston in the 1770s. Yeah. Um, but they drove Richardson out of it, uh, back to his home. They, like he ran away and stuff like that. He was getting really. They were throwing. They were throwing stones at him. And he actually broke his front door, some of his windows. And then another man, who's his neighbor George Wilmot, actually comes in his defense. And they armed themselves with muskets, right? And they fired a musket at this group, and they kill or they hit this young boy, name of Christopher Snyder. Um, this you're going to see some different. Um, sometimes it's Snyder with a Y, Snyder with an I, depending on the sources that you look at. And the boys um, die later that night. And the mob, there was actually a mob gathered. They wanted to basically go and just kill Richardson at that moment. But they, other people kind of convinced, like, no, no, let, let the courts do this. You know, we'll you know, let justice be served that way. So tensions were running high at this funeral. Brawls basically broke out between the soldiers and a bunch of these rope makers. This is actually where you get the saying, the end of the rope. This is where this mm-hmm. comes from. So this is in Boston South End in um, March of seventeen, March second and third of seventeen seventy. The British troops actually arrive um, the next day, searching these the rope works owned by a man named John Gray, and they were looking for a um, sergeant that they believed that he may, um, could have been murdered. And Gray had heard the British troops were coming to attack his workers, or that's like the rumor. So he consulted with some other commanders of these fourteen regiments, and they both agreed that they would. Um, basically restrain anyone who tried to do anything and this leads to rumors so both sides are kind of just like playing this game of telephone right which is just causing more and more um problems for both sides and this, this is literally just like a day before the, the massacre. day before yeah and the mob is just getting bigger in the morning of march 5th uh, they started posting all these like i guess you would call them propaganda really like like hate mail right about the british soldiers and putting them all over boston so the soldiers are reading this they're told by their superiors, you know, be ready to defend themselves. And then there's a big crowd that night where you have all these Bostonians roaming the streets of anger. A lot of them were like drinking and stuff like that. And what really made them mad too is there was a rumor that the soldiers were going to cut down the Liberty Tree. This this Liberty Tree was a place where during the Stamp Act, which has since been repealed, they um, hung up an effigy. You know, when they like make a, like like a puppet or something of somebody, or like in this case they would make it. They would just dress up like a bunch of like sticks and leaves as like a red coat and burn it on, on this tree. So they, they hung a whole bunch of effigies on the tree during the Stamp Act. So it became kind of this like symbol of Boston. It was actually even a copper-plated sign that read the Tree of Liberty. And the idea was that the rumor was that the records were going to cut it down. And this is what swelled a lot of these, this anger. But about 50 to 60 people all came and started to go after the uh, barracks in Boston. On the evening of March 5th, right? So you already have this tension. The town is pretty much, you have these bands of people running through the town, 
ready to ultimately almost like start an incident. Oh, they were um, fired up, yeah. Yep. Right, so evening of March 5th, you have a private named, uh, his last name was, his first name was Hugh. His last name was White. Hugh White, he stands guard uh, duty outside Boston's Custom House, right? It's on King Street. Today is known as State Street, by the way. And as he's standing there, this private White, you know, he's defending the Boston Custom House, just him. 13-year-old boy named Edward Garrick walks by and starts picking on another British soldier a lieutenant I, these are these are like 13 year olds that are like yeah, picking yeah. on the british they're like going after the british after these british redcoats like the most powerful army in the world and they're like mocking them calling them names and that's exactly what it was yeah this so this 13 year old edward garrick starts mocking this this other soldier that was walking by he wasn't even a soldier on duty it was uh john goldfinch it was just another you know lieutenant captain yeah, uh walking by and this 13 year old starts mocking him like oh did you pay your bill did you pay your bill um, and the uh, goldfinch kind of this lieutenant starts ignoring him a little bit and private white who's standing guard outside Boston custom house. He's kind of annoyed by this. So he's yells over to the 13 year old Garrick. He's like, listen, you, you got to be more respectful. This is an officer. You can't talk to him like that. And then Garrick talks back to him. And at that point, white gets upset. So he like leaves his post, walks down and challenges this, this little kid. And they start, they start arguing back and forth and white, strikes him on the side of the head with his musket and at that point garrick falls to the ground and he cries out in pain and he like screams and garrick's friends also 13 12 year old whatever nearby they start screaming at white like why did you do that why did you hurt him and a larger crowd starts getting you know it's kind of starts coming in here and especially as you said there's already crowds around the city so before you know it it's like 2050 and it's this swells up to Ultimately, about 400 people are there. Uh, one of the people that is a witness is Henry Knox, eventually, you know, Ford Knox. And at the time, he's only 19 years old. He's like a bookseller, eventually becomes a general. The little kid, Edward Garrick's still there, and he's still cursing Private White. Uh, at that point, because there was so many Bostonians that were angry coming at him, the lieutenant winds up running up to pass the customs house and for assistance, right? And he gets Captain Thomas Preston, He's yeah. an officer of the watch at a nearby place, not even the same place, like nearby barracks. They, they, they basically want to get the soldiers out of there. So they, Preston right. marches seven soldiers with fixed bayonets to go and try to rescue the sentry, which is basically that small group that's being there. Yep. And what they know is that the um, redcoats, the soldiers, were not read the riot act yet, which I know we call that now. We call it, we read the riot act. It's kind of another saying that comes from this. These means they, they were not allowed to fire their weapons. Until they read the riot act, they cannot fire their weapons. Right? So all they're doing is basically telling the, the crowd to disperse and stuff like that. And they're just constantly being taunted and stuff like that. A lot of people saying, you know, shoot, shoot us, shoot, see what's going to happen. They kept, you know, saying, yeah, they kept yelling, yeah. fire, fire, fire yeah. at us. Come on. If, if you shoot, you're going to die. And they are pelting them with snow, ice, oyster shells. A lot of the snow, from if you read different accounts, was probably like snowballs, just, you know, rocks inside with ice, and they're just pelting constantly at, at the soldiers the whole time. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions, Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. 
From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And what's interesting, too, is because this obviously comes up right in court shortly thereafter, everyone believes that Preston was the one that, that ordered them to fire. But Preston was standing in front of these uh, soldiers. So soldiers, the yeah. soldiers that got there, there was like six or seven of them, plus whatever was whoever was there, lined up in like a semicircular shape. And they have their muskets up, except Preston is not behind them, like saying you know, get ready. No, Preston's standing in front of them. So clearly he did not say fire because he doesn't want to get shot. You know, if anything they were saying, that's why he was standing there. He was saying, do not fire. That's, that yeah. was basically what there's a lot of the historical records are saying that he was saying, do not fire, do not fire, do not, you know, load your weapons. But also, so this, like you said, these guys are being egged on, you know? Yeah. And at the same time, well, now a lot of what we know about this comes from the court case that follows, but an object is thrown at Private Montgomery, right? And it knocks this private down, and he drops his musket. So apparently, I think that's what comes up later on, is that he gets up and he recovers his weapon, and he's like really angry, and he says, damn you, fire, supposedly. supposedly. Um, so at that point, when he says this, supposedly, Private Montgomery, he was one of the two that was found guilty of manslaughter, he discharges his weapon into the crowd, although no command is given, the other soldiers yeah, once, do the once same. they hear one fire, they all start firing. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, someone just right away with his bat hits Montgomery over the arm, over his head and his arm. Then Preston gets hit. And Preston, the bullet just like flies by his head. He almost got his head shot off. So he drops to the ground and then people start hitting him. And they said it was a, it was a slight pause. And once like the crowd realized that they're being shot at, they started to slowly like back away um 11 so the shots hit 11 men right three americans died instantly so yeah one of them was crispus Akis, right yep. which is probably which was um african-american sailor probably a former slave they're not really sure who was shot and died almost immediately and two of the other ones that were shot died later and they wanted to stop for the vice the crowd starts to disperse pretty much right after that because again they're yep. being shot at and lieutenant governor thomas hutchison who'd been summoned to the scene and arrives right after the shooting takes place. He orders Preston and his contingent back to the barracks. Yeah, because he which, runs through. He runs inside, goes in a yeah. balcony, and yeah. yells at him from about. He's like, "Guys!" He basically tells everyone, "Like, leave. I promise yeah. that there is going to be an inquiry. I promise yes. those responsible will be held accountable." Yeah, because he wanted to bring some sort of like peace to the city, and they did get peace, but it was a um, uneasy peace. So right afterwards, the very next morning, Preston and the seven soldiers that were um, there were all under arrest. Um, and it was a town meeting that basically produced a demand removal of all the troops. And by March 11th, both the 14 and 20 Russians had uh, left Boston, Boston Harbor. Because you're fearing for their safety and stuff like that. A lot of other custom officials, basically anyone who had a strong ties to the British, kind of left town for a little bit just to like see what was going on. And then there were a lot of delays. It just happened in March, and the, the uh, arrangement didn't happen until September. 
Well, they supposedly they kept on delaying it. Uh, they kept on delaying it because you have this massive media battle that takes place yeah. where you have both sides are publishing the these pamphlets. Yeah, they're publishing these pamphlets. Um, they're, you know, the patriots, the loyalists, like of what actually happened. And it's really inciting more violence. And, and people robbed up who weren't there. And that's what is when we t- exactly. t- talked about this in class or when we, used, when we did, you always saw those, those images, right? Those pictures. I mean, they're drawings. Yeah. That makes it called a massacre. This is where the name becomes a massacre because we're not trying to say you know, any loss of life is not is is you know I'm not yeah, but this was not a massacre. It, but it wasn't a massacre. Okay, yeah. you you didn't have forty people being killed. No, even close to that. You didn't have hundreds of people because you think massacre. You're like, oh my god. And when you see like the pictures or like those drawings, you always have the kids like analyze it. And I'll be honest, you know, in my district, they teach this. Well, they teach it twice. They're teaching sixth grade, then again later on in the, in the high school. But they're showing these images to sixth graders and they're looking at it and they can interpret, oh, yeah, this is propaganda. They can just look at it and how's it propaganda? Because you have the soldier, looks like he's giving the fire. They're all aiming at them. Everyone looks like they're all running away. He doesn't show anything about them throwing snowballs and stuff like that. It shows the people like crawling away and still being shot. There's other ones where they actually show that the soldiers are stabbing them with bayonets, which did not happen. They even put dogs in it. I know the kids always get some picture with like a little yeah. Dog I was like, oh, I noticed a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A dog running away and stuff like that to try to like appeal to people's like you know set sentimentality and everything. So, like, well, it, you know what the interesting you thing about this is propaganda. Like, it's obviously propaganda on yeah. both sides. These the British are doing it too. You just don't exactly. see that because we're on the other side. Well, actually, a lot of this, a lot of these uh, pamphlets were published in London because they're trying to influence the opinion. In London, of like, look at the colonists, they're so ungrateful and terrible, and they're attacking our soldiers, yeah. and our soldiers have no choice. But the one interesting thing here is because we all use Paul Revere's engraving. I feel like every teacher has used it. Yeah. And every probably every person's known that you know knows of the Boston Massacre is like, oh yeah, Paul Revere, I got that. But actually, the main engraver was Henry Fellum, was the an engraver that first depicted this engraving. The silversmith and engraver Paul Revere copies the image. That is already engraved, and um, and he kind of tweaks it a little bit, but it's almost identical. I mean, if if you have to say like plagiarism of a painting or of an engraving, this would be it. So his uh, is the one that becomes famous for some reason, the Paul Revere one. But in reality, when you look at it, it's actually he was not the original guy that made it. Henry Pelham was, yeah, but Paul Revere becomes famous for other things and things reasons later on, and it kind of comes back. Oh, he did the engraving. With the Boston Massacre, well, all this like propaganda, a lot of it was done by Sam Adams, right? Samuel Adams yeah. was basically the one that called it a horrible massacre. He's the one that he's known as a skillful protagonist, so he knows how to get people robbed up, and that's that's what he's doing here. So let's talk about the trial itself because this is a very famous or infamous trial, depending which way you want to look at it. And the one thing is that you have John Adams, who already is, you know, he's a leading patriot in the city. He's known. He's an attorney. Uh, he's thinking of running for public office. He's not the John Adams yeah. you eventually get to know. He's not I, vice president of anything yet. I saw interrupt you. And the HBO special that they did on Adams, they show him that actually like coming when the Boston Massacre takes place, like right back to Boston. He's there the night of, and he's like holding the dying boy in his arms in the movie. That never happened in real life. John Adams wasn't there when that took place. It's one of those Hollywood, yeah. yeah. So everyone wants to have a fair trial. That's the key. The government yes, wants a fair they, trial. We know that's important to do. But nobody wants to defend them. So Preston uh, sends a request to John Adams pleading for him to work on the case. He's like, look, I've heard this John Adams guy is really good. No one else wants to take up my case. So we don't even know how many people he sent a a request to prior to John Adams. 
But John Adams is the one that finally says, all right, like, I'll, I'll do this. Yeah, no, he doesn't really ever give a reason, too. Like, that's another thing that I thought was interesting is that, like, they don't really know why he decided to. Was it just because he was, um, you know, deserved, everyone deserved a fair trial? Um, he was a supporter of that, right? He did have, they, was it because he wanted everyone to know he had a high respect for law? He also, Sam Adams was his cousin. He didn't, he didn't like the violent optics of his cousin, the Sons of Liberty, so I think it was more of a protest to that. But he had his reasons, he had his personal reasons that are really not well known. But he does do it. And he's, he gets, think about it, you are going to be the lawyer for the soldiers of the Boston Massacre. It's not going to, in Boston. It's not going to be an yeah. easy. Uh, well, they would job. throw bricks through his window. They would literally yeah. throw bricks through his window. His uh, at his wife, you know, uh, would be harassed in the streets. People were like, "Why are you doing this?" And his one thing that was kind of smart on his part is he separated the actual trial. So Preston was trialed separately, and then the soldiers that opened fire were trialed separately. And he did this because for Preston's defense, he looked at it. Did he order the troops to fire? Like that was his whole yeah. defense. And because no one could prove that he ordered them to fire, Preston is let go. He's acquitted. So, and then the trial for the soldiers begins. And even that, that one, John Adams is like, look, forget that these guys are British. Let's just think of a, a bunch of people. There's a crowd, there's pro, you know provocation and soldiers, yeah, whether they're fearing yeah, from the life and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he described the slave Crispus Attucks, and he he actually says again part of the times I guess his very look was enough to terrify any person, um, and with one hand he held the bayonet and with the other knocked the man down, and then he starts talking the same thing about other members that were there in the crowd, and he's describing of like kind of how scary this was, and yeah. I, I, I my assumption is when he's talking about the former slave, um, he was very look enough to terrify a person is probably a racist connotation to that or of racism oh, right, times. There's some contradicting statements because some people are saying like, well, Addicts wasn't really that close. He wasn't the first one up there hitting anybody. But Adams really stuck to this Addicts behavior. It's well, like an old he probability. Also, he was dead. So he's not like he was there to defend himself. Either. Exactly. He, he no. could spend whatever narrative he wanted to. Yeah. You know? And that became his thing though. He's like, that was, it was this angry black man coming at them. And then he basically argues that the soldiers have the right, legal right to fight back against any mob. And therefore, because they have the right to fight back and protect their own lives, they are innocent, regardless whether they provoked or not. So they were mostly found not guilty. Well, yeah. So Preston was found innocent. All the other um, soldiers were, well, except for two of the enlisted men were found innocent. The two, he actually argued their convictions down to manslaughter. And they did. Then remember, this is not the American legal system. This is the British, British. legal system at the time. Yeah. So they had wrote something known as the plea to clergy, which is like an ancient tenet of English law. And they negotiated their sentences down to just branding of their thumbs for first-time offenders, so they all go free. But what this does do is it paves the road to the revolution, like we talked about, because people are not going to forget this. This is still part of the narrative, and it really gets John Adams on the center stage. He's going to wind up becoming one of the founding fathers, and then eventually a future president. Do you see that four civilians were tried on December? They waited a month, another month after this even, because these take place in November. That's how long they wait from the event. But a month later, this four civilians are put on trial as well for inciting this rebellion, causing violence. And they are all acquitted. One guy is like the one that was like really bad, supposedly, is like whipped and banished from the Providence. But uh, it's not like the civilians were not put on trial either. There was, you know, it was four that were considered like these are the... Rubble rousers, the ones that started it. The British weren't going to tolerate that sort of stuff either. 
Yep. Like this is also, we talk about, yeah, it paves the way to the revolution, but it's also another example why the British feel they have to be a little bit tighter now. They have to watch these Sons of Liberty and these other people in Boston, you know? Yeah, and it, interestingly enough, Samuel Adams, like you said, a cousin, creates like an annual holiday called Massacre yeah. Day. Oh, he's not letting um, anyone forget it, yeah. Yep, for every year after that, until the you know, American Revolutionary War starts uh, seven years later. The one boy that was wounded in the attack apparently lived until 1780, and then he winds up dying. Uh, it is a contribution to American Revolution, but this is not the last big development between the two. And it, they said it's considered significant. But as we mentioned from the very beginning, this happened in 1770. It's not like the next month they're like, all right, we're going to war with Britain. I wouldn't say it was a cause of the revolution either. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, like people, I always got like when kids think, oh, what was the cause of the revolution? Boston Massacre, Boston Tea Party. It's like, mm. yeah, but what, what, what happened? What caused those events to take place? Those are the real cause of the revolution. These are just kind of incidents that happened on the road to revolution. I, w- I wouldn't argue that they were a cause. Yeah, I mean, it definitely strains the relationship between Britain and its colonies, but that relationship was already strained. So it's just adding fuel to the fire. And and eventually there's just, you know, enough is enough. Well, they do still reenact it today on March 5th. The Bostonian Society does this. Really? They do it. It's part of Boston's Freedom Trail. Also, you ever go to Boston, you take the Freedom Trail. That one's actually really cool. And there was a sign, interesting enough, right in front of the Customs House. There's like this circular sign on in a ground that says... This is the site of the Boston Massacre. That's actually incorrect. Uh, the real place of the massacre is like 50 feet to the right of that sign, but that would put you in the middle of a very busy road today. Um, so yeah, they moved they to, it. They have to be practical with their with their historical accuracies. Yeah, they're like, uh, we want a road here, so it's kind of over here. So obviously, somebody's play. I mean, John Adams becomes somebody. Uh, it becomes a big deal eventually. Just, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Eventually, you have the Tea Act comes out of 73, which brings you to Boston Tea Party, which leads you to intolerable acts, which ultimately shut down the Boston port, which is, I guess I mentioned before, one of the main three colonial cities. Colonial ports, yeah. That's that's where things came in from Britain or around the world. You need that port open if the colonies are going to make money, especially if Massachusetts was going to make money. Yeah, and then collectively, you start adding all these things up, these last intolerable acts, that this fuels a sense of injustice and in its oppression, right, among the American colonists. And that is what ultimately contributes significantly to the growth of this content and eventually erupts into the American Revolutionary War. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty I much think it. We summed it up. Yeah, they summed it up. Da, 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 da. Anyway, as always, if you guys want to find out more about this, just, you know, go Google or you can always shoot us an email. Maybe we can help you out with some of this stuff. But. If you need to find us, you guys can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are there to answer any of your questions. Thank you so much for your support, guys. Make sure you click that like and subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast. And we will see you guys again next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. 
It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.